invented by the British to combat German submarines, and the Germans never really found out how it worked. It was a secret job he was doing, and it was a very important job because he must have saved hundreds of men's lives. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If to us, by the time anyone got to us... I think it was chaos. ...the weather was so bad, there would be no to boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Anthony Greatrek served in World War II in the Royal Australian Air Force. Anthony is the younger brother of the late Barney Greatrex, who our longtime podcast listeners will remember from season one. Barney had an epic war, a bomb aimer in Bomber Command, shot down, the only survivor of his Lancaster crash, eight months fighting with the French resistance against the Germans, ending in a Legion of Honour in 2016, and a book in 2017. The memory of Antony's war has always lived a bit in Barney's shadow. Antony, along with half a million other Australians who put on a uniform, never went overseas to fight. He had a logistical support role, a high-frequency direction finder or hoof operator. But after knowing the family for some years, Antony invited me to his home to finally go on the record about his World War II service. This is our conversation. I'm Alex Lloyd, and today I'm in the home of Anthony Greatrex. Anthony, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. Anthony, I would like to start our conversation by talking about your father, Basil. He was in South Africa when World War I broke out, I believe. That's right, yes. And when the war broke out, he joined up. Yes, and I always remember him saying he decided to join the army the first thing they did was to ask him to get on a horse and gallop around this oval, which he did. And after, I suppose, various things went on, he said he'd been to um, a school in England called Oakham. And uh, he said, if you went to the right school and you could ride a horse, you were officer material. He was in South Africa and joined a irregular mounted cavalry unit, I understand. That's what, correct, yes. And then he goes over to Cairo and he's getting ready to be shipped out to Gallipoli. But then why? Well, I think he first went to England and then he went to a, um, an army school there. He had to be taught to be, a, be an officer, I suppose, <laughs> and, and to do whatever you had to do, which he was going to be in the ordinance. And then he eventually, after his training in England, he is sent to Egypt, but he doesn't make it to Gallipoli. Why is that? Well, I really don't know. I think he went over there to try and catch up with people he might have known there, but I know very little about that. And instead, he finds himself posted to the Macedonian front. Yes, he was there. And also, but I think mainly in Egypt and exactly what his job entailed, I wouldn't know but it was in ordinance. And your mother, Elsie, she was a nurse during the war. That's right, yes. Where was she based? 
Well, she finished nursing in Australia before the war. She went by herself over to um, America and nursed in the California and then was nursing a family up in near Chicago, that's right. And then the war, First World War broke out and she immediately or very soon got a ship over to England and she didn't join the Army Medical Corps or anything like that. She just nursed in England as required. Nursing officers and soldiers returned from the front or? Yes, yes, mostly that I think. German airships were coming over and dropping bombs and one injured her and she had to stop nursing for a while and we've got pictures of her. She went out and joined the land army in England, milk cows and that sort of thing, which she loved. Playing her part in whatever way she could. That's right, yes. And your father and mother, they had met in Australia prior to the war. That's right, yes. And then they got married in 1915. In England? Yes. And there's a family legend at War's End about Basil stopping a riot. At this point, Anthony's wife, Kath, stepped in to help answer the question. You've covered a bit of Anthony's father's First World War service. He was very lucky to survive because I don't think he actually saw action as such, but to survive Macedonia was something because they had all sorts of nasty diseases and things like that. That surrection in Cairo, well, in actual fact, what it was, it was the go-downs because he had all the horses. They got them back as far as Cairo. Egyptians were raiding the go-downs where they were storing all the grain and they had to stop this. And Basil literally just walked out into the street with all these people with knives and God knows what all and stood there and told them they could not raid the go-downs and have the grain because he needed it for the horses and it belonged to the British army. And luckily for him, they backed off because I have a relative whose father was knifed to death in Damascus trying to do the same thing. Well, Captain Basil Greatrex and his wife Elsie eventually do move to Australia. And Anthony, when are you born? 5th of January, 23. You're the middle child in the Greatrex family, with Barney as your older brother and Pleasance as your younger sister. Can you tell me a bit more about your childhood? Well, of course, I don't remember much about it particularly, but uh, I was born in Bondi. We moved down to uh, Parsley Bay, yes. And we have photos of ourselves standing by the water down there and mucking around and doing what other children do. We've been back, Kath and I went back there and tried to find the house, but it had all been pulled down. And And what did your father do for work when he moved out to Australia? His family had a big leather works in England, in Walsall in England during the 1850s. And in fact, his family became very wealthy. But by the time he, in the early 1920s, that sort of thing, most of the wealth had gone. But he did have experience in running a small business. So he had a very limited amount of capital. And what he did was he got agencies for British companies And he set himself up in Sydney. And we will come back to that company as you and your brother work for it post-war. Do you remember the Great Depression growing up? 
Yes, although I think at that age, I don't think children really realised what was going on. We had relatives up at Stratford, and I used to go up. Mine in Pleasance didn't much, but I used to go up and see them. We went up by train, steam train it was, and I always remember going along the Hunter River, isn't it? It goes in from Newcastle, and seeing all the tents that people had put up, and they were all living in it on the river. How many? Oh, there were dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of them, makeshift camps and this sort of thing. But the trouble is, when you're at that age, you don't, it doesn't really sink in. No, you don't fully understand what you have that others might not. That's right, yes. And it's just such an abstract concept for a child to really appreciate if you're not faced with the reality of it's it. It's odd the small things that you remember. I remember being, when we, we were living at Pimble at that time in the 1930s, and I remember some friend of my father and mother coming to see us and have afternoon tea. And when he left, he said, oh, look, could you give us a shilling? Or he asked for something. He said, I haven't got any money to get home. I always remember that. It's something that you, you wouldn't strike today. Now, your brother Barney went to Knox Grammar and you did as well, but you had a bit more of a varied schooling career than Barney. Preschool, both Barney and my sister went to, I think there were two in Pimble, and then I went to Knox. Now, how long I was at Knox in the junior school, I'm not sure, but Mr Chapman was the headmaster. Do you describe it as headmaster of the junior school? He was the head of the preparatory school un right. under the overall headmaster, Neil McNeil. And I think my mother got on with him very well, and I wasn't doing, I never did do well at school at all. I think I was keen enough, and I, I enjoyed it, because I, I, particularly in the high school, when I first went there, they started a woodworking class. They had a proper classroom with all the woodworking tools and things. This was, and I got on quite well there. My recollection of going to high school, in Oxford, all the masters and everyone there were very kind about, but they recognised you if you didn't have the ability to get through all the exams. You mentioned Mr Chapman at the Knox Preparatory School. He was enlisted in B Company of the 2nd Battalion, 1st Infantry Brigade, Australian Imperial Forces. He arrived in Egypt in December 1914, and he joined the Gallipoli Campaign and the assault on Lone Pine. He was promoted to Lance Corporal, and, and he was wounded in the eye during that action. He eventually finished up the war as captain. How did you react when you first learned that Australia was at war in 1939? Well, I can remember the day it happened because I was at the Gordon Picture Theatre, which was one of those huge places that all the suburbs had, as there was no TV, and <laughs> Picture Theatre was... I mean, I remember walking out of it and walking home to Pimble, and uh, I saw everyone was starting to talk about that war had broken out. How did you feel at the time? Very little. Very little. You don't comprehend the disaster that was about to open upon us. You would have been 16 years old. Did you have an inkling that you might get caught up in it soon? No, I didn't. You didn't think about it, really. Well, you finish up at Knox Grammar in December 1940 at 17 years of age, and then March 1941, you join up. By then, had you mentally prepared yourself for the possible adventure or challenges ahead? I thought of joining up really is a continuing my education. When I was young, I was very much a, um, interested in wireless technology and crystal. We used to make crystal wireless sets, wind the little coil and make the whole thing work. It was good. And then I thought that 
in fact, it turned out that way, that um, I could continue that education by joining the Air Force as a wireless operator. Well, your initial training, it throws some surprises at you. Didn't affect me in the least. <laughs> we spent a fortnight at Richmond being introduced and getting a uniform, and then we were all sent down to Melbourne, and we lived in the um, exhibition building, that huge building that they built for the first parliament, and we all lived in there. We all marched down every morning to the Melbourne Technical College, which wasn't very far away, and uh, truly my recollections of was we never thought about the war and what was going to happen or anything. It was just an exciting tertiary education. It was, yes. Then at training in Mount Gambier, you were flying Avro Ansons. Yes. What happened was we finished, the, the, a huge number started off in the wireless section, learning about Morse code and all that. And after six months, how many were left, I don't know, but a lot of them dropped out. But I managed to get through it all right. And then we went down to Point Cook to finish the course off. And that was another two months. So it was about eight months all told, I should have would have thought. How did you find flying the aircraft? Was it fun? Did you enjoy being No, no, that's where I had a tiff with the Air Force, you might say. Because when we finished at Point Cook, and I got, you see that picture of me passing out, they sent us all to the, or quite a number of us, to Mount Gambia. I did realise later, I didn't at that time, that what they were aiming for was to get air crew. And um, while I was there, Japan came in, into the war and everything, the, I don't think they, the, I think everyone was so surprised at it all, particularly the rapid advance of the Japanese. Because until then, the Empire Air Training Scheme had been purely dedicated to providing air crews for bomber command and fighter command That's to right. supply the effort in the European theatre. And suddenly we have this threat closer to home and it's marching forward so That's fast, right. Singapore is falling. So suddenly we have to meet our quotas of commitments to right. the Commonwealth as well as defending our own shores. And there's um, more discussion these days that there's no real indication Japan really wanted to invade Australia outright, but I think they were surprised at their own success. But it's a very understandable fear at the time that they're coming south and they're not stopping and they're winning victory after victory after victory. So they were looking to use you as one of many air crew to send either to keep in the Pacific or send over to Europe. But you put your hand up and say, actually, I find this a bit dull. Well, I, I, when we got there, that, that one of the faults for the Air Force I found, they, they never had a meeting and said, now, this is what's going to happen and we'd like you to know that you're going to do this or that. They never did. You, they just come up and say, well, when we were at Point Cook finishing the course and I passed out as a wireless operator, they just shoved us all off to Mount Gambier and didn't tell, you, tell us anything, really, what was going on. And now I had, I suppose, half a dozen or eight or maybe ten, I don't know, flights in these avenues as a wireless operator, I found that this is something I don't like particularly. It, you just sat there on a two-hour trip in the Avro Anson or a three-hour or whatever it was, and you maybe send two or three messages, Morse code. And also I, I felt pretty sick in the things. I got air sick and they stank. <laughs> and one day I saw a notice on the board. It wasn't that many weeks after we'd got to Mount Gambier calling for people uh, who were interested in becoming, uh, doing an extra course. So I filled in the form and gave it in. And then I was called up by someone in an office and they were absolutely furious. (laughs) 
They said you'll never fly again. <laughs> well, you're, you get your wish to um, be posted to ground duties. And in 1942 and 43, you're rotated through a few postings at Darwin, Bachelor, Darwin again, and Alice Springs. My feeling was at that stage, the Air Force and, and I suppose the Army too, they didn't know what to do. They weren't fully confirmed whether the Japanese were going to invade Darwin. Because I got up to Darwin... When I was posted from Melbourne after this bit of a fiasco at Mount Gambier, it, I got up to Darwin on the 12th of March and Darwin was bombed on the 19th of February. What was the atmosphere like? Thinking back on it, I think it was chaos because when I got up there, we all trooped out and think, oh, well, we'll do our Morse code or whatever. And they said, oh, look, you and you and you, we will, there's no one to collect the garbage in Darwin. The, the, the garbage collectors have all flown. <laughs> so I spent the first week or, or a few days anyhow in a truck collecting the garbage. So what was your role um, in Darwin and the other locations? Well, the first wireless role I had there was the Air Force had moved there I think they'd moved their wireless section to another part of Darwin, away from the airdrome, and I was there for some weeks just in the wireless room receiving messages and sending messages out. And then, this was about three or four weeks after I got to Darwin, I was sent down to Bachelor, which is a town not far south of Darwin, and I was occupied there in the transmission room where they transmitted, sent all the signals out and all that and sort of doing a bit of repair on it and this sort of thing. And then they said, look, you're going to Alice Springs. So I got on the train and went down to Catherine and then by truck to Alice Springs. And uh, when I got to Alice Springs, they said, look, we'd like you to go to Udnadatta. You'll be the only Air Force person there. Uh, so I, I got on the train or did I go by air? I'm not sure what. And I lived in the hotel there, Hotel Transcontinental, and I operated the little... There was an airstrip there with small planes kept coming in and going out, and I operated that just by myself. So you get to live in the comfort of the hotel and uh, have a more relaxing job than you'll later find during the war. How did you feel about that, being um, grounded in Australia? Did you want to be serving overseas? Or no, were you happy I didn't. You, you were happy where you were? I was quite happy where And I liked being by myself, actually. You're an independent... I'm an independent sort of person. I did sleep in a room with a guy about my age, and he was a, uh, in the Bureau of Meteorology. One of the things he did every day, he sent a balloon up into the air, and then he'd give me the data of what he'd got with the speed of the wind and everything up in the sky. And I'd send that down to the wherever he asked me to send it. So you were having your ideal war? Yes, I enjoyed it really. Only he, he was a more typical Australian and he did keen on the bar and drinking, whereas I never drank and never smoked. <laughs> and I think if you like that, it's a, there's a, there was a, an attitude, I think, in those days, if you didn't drink and you didn't smoke, you were definitely someone a bit peculiar. And how did you find learning Morse code back when you were training? Oh, I had no trouble at all. It's a matter of uh, keeping at it. How many words a minute could you tell? I, I can't remember exactly. It might have been 24 or something like that. It was enough to please the Air Force anyhow. September 1943 sees you commence a direction finding course. 40 go in and you're one of only eight who pass the course. Before we go any further about your experiences, though, can you tell me a bit more about 
What is high-frequency direction finding? Well, it was in, invented by the British to combat German submarines, and the Germans never really found out how it worked. What it was, it was a setup that uh, could receive any signal that was being sent out for an aircraft or a submarine or whatever you like, and it could tell exactly how many degrees it was from that station. Now, the result was that if you had two stations, two direction-finding stations well apart, and both could receive that signal at the same time, then you could draw on a map lines and you could pinpoint where it was coming from. And this was a great asset to the British because the Germans were sending out these signals from their submarine every day. So the British set the DF stations up and they knew where the submarines were. And you could triangulate their position and send a bombing right. raid. Or, yeah. And its nickname was Hoofdorf. Hoofdorf, yes. And out here in Australia, U-boats did make their way out here, but primarily we would have uh, used it to detect Japanese submarine activity. Well, no, not submarines. I think it was only we were allocated a frequency to tune in into, and then most, 99% of the time, it would be a plane, might be 50 miles away, it might have been 1,000 miles away, you asking no for the direction that they were from our station so that the operator on the plane, he could get one from the station I was in and one from someone else, and then he could draw on his map two lines and he'd know where he was. Yes, the days before GPS, of course. So you would use this to help guide our own forces, as you just described. Would you ever use it to hunt down enemy activity? I don't think so, no. I don't. It, 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 now I could be wrong there, but these signals came in. We, we were supposed to, any signal on that... They'd tell us what frequency to get onto, and any signal that came in, you'd write it down in your logbook, and then that'd go back to the office. Would you always know what signal you were tracking, or you would just track what you were told? No, we didn't. Because I'm thinking in the, some of the latter years of the war, there would have been some of that activity in the New Guinea area that you might have been tracking Japanese without yes. knowing. Yes. In fact, there were... DF stations. I don't know how many they built in Australia, but I, I would imagine about a dozen or so. But there were stations over on the in Townsville and places like that, and up in the north coast of the Northern Territory. They could have been doing that. Now let's go back to your specific experiences. Your first hoofdorf posting is at Amberley in Queensland. It was to Amberley. I wasn't there very long. They were also running Archerfield. But I was sent to Archerfield. I stayed in the camp. They had a camp there, the Air Force, for But then they said, look, you go out, you can live in the, in the town of Brisbane. So they gave me an address to go to. And I lived in this house with a lady and a family. And I had a bicycle and I rode into Archerfield. It was quite a nice existence. Funny thing, the main thing I remember about Archerfield was, a Lancaster bomber came in and was parked down the end of it. It was the first big bomber I'd ever seen, and I always remember that. And also, in this particular DF station at Archerfield, there was a huge revolver sitting on the bench. Why it was there, I don't know, but it's odd what you remember. Your daily commute was just a bicycle trip through the town? That's right, yes. And they, I went, and went into the Air Force camp there where they had a you got all your meals and anything like that. And your bike was stolen? Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> it was, yes. I don't think I ever got it back. And by now, your siblings are also at war. Pleasance was a nurse? That's right. 
and where was she based? Well, I wouldn't know. I had very little... We, we weren't a family that kept in contact that much. Do you think that stemmed from your father, who wasn't very much of a chatty bloke himself? My father was a very reserved person, and I, I can only ever remember ever getting one letter from him during the war. Wow, I thought he um, would understand a bit more what you were going through, haven't We would, but yes, but he... He was very English. Yes. And also your brother Barney is with Bomber Command as a bomb aimer for a Lancaster yes. bomber. And on the 25th of February, 1944, Barney's plane is shot down and goes missing. When did you first learn of his disappearance? Well, that I've been racking my brains when I must have got a letter or a telegram. Because I've seen the telegram, the original telegram that was sent from Bomber Command to your parents and the letter from his squadron commander that hence followed. And I imagine your mother or father would have sent you a note to inform you of the sad news. Yes. They must have, but I, I can't recall the day, but I can recall the day that they got the telegram and said he was safe. Your longest posting as a direction finder is at Corona Downs in WA. You're there from September 44. The RAAF had number 24 and number 25 squadrons, and the USAAC 380th Bomb Group were based there for long-range missions against Japanese shipping and base facilities in the Dutch East Indies. Do you remember the bombers or the aircrew? The DF station at Corona Downs, two or three miles, I suppose, I think south of the airstrips, we were provided with a, an American motorbike and sidecar. It was called an Indian. I had a schedule to go down. It, it had to be manned 24 hours a day. And I, uh, we just organised it ourselves, really. So we didn't have much to do with the rest of the station. But I must have heard quite a few aircraft, but you didn't see them. So tell me about the crew you're based with and interact with day to day. Now, there was usually, usually four, but not always, sometimes three. So it was up to us, to my memory, to organise it so there was someone there all the time. And were you all like-minded fellows, happy to work long hours by yourself and happy to be in Australia? I don't think so. I think the others hated it. And in fact, a lot of people were very dismissive of Corona Downs, they didn't like the place at all. I found the food good. There was a travelling library and you could have marvellous walks. People say it's, it was terrible, but it, it's not because you could have these walks through the dry creek beds and this sort of thing. What do you think they found terrible about the place? First of all, the social life in places like Corona Downs and like a lot of Air Force stations were abs was absolutely nil. There was no social life at all. And in fact, there was no... There was no women in Corona Downs, as far as I can remember. You never saw, I didn't see a woman for a whole year. Can you describe the direction finding hut itself for me? I'm looking at a photo of your Geraldton hut. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, Geraldton. Well, all the DF stations looked exactly like that. Absolutely exactly. With just the one person in it. Actually, it would be about the size of this room. What would you think this room would be? About four by four? The most. It, it was about four by four uh, with the DF equipment in the middle of it and it had four masts very precisely placed around it. Four massive of these antenna that just... Yes, and they were the masts that picked up the signal and um, it went into the DF set and was that's where it transposed to the little cathode ray tube there that you can see. Now, but all around that little hut, you might call it, the ground had been dug up and they'd laid 
chicken wire, really. It was to equalise the magnetic um, influence, so it was all exactly the same. It, it went out quite a distance. And every month we used to have to, we had a little uh, thing about the size of a suitcase, and we'd walk around the perimeter, and that would send a signal back to someone sitting in the, in the DF station, and you could check whether it was getting the signals in at the right strength and resonance and whatever. And you've also got a photo here of inside the DF hut, and I understand taking a photo of the equipment back then was quite illegal. Well, I suppose it was, really, but it's a, it's a bit of a joke now when you look at it. Well, I don't think you're going to have the Air Force I think that was at the very end of the war when they were shutting them all down, anyhow. And you can see those photos of the hut and Anthony standing in the doorway on our social media pages. So it was quite a lonely job. Can you describe your, just from your point of view, the day-to-day routine you would have had at Geraldton or Corona Downs or any of Yes, well, the shifts were supposedly eight hours, but usually it was longer than that. I think that if you liked, you, you keep yourself quite busy checking things. The other thing was that every DF station, well, Corona Downs had its own power supply about 500 metres away, and you had to go down every now and again and check that. After Corona Downs, you're at Geraldton and then at Bustleton? Bustleton, yes. Do any significant moments stand out from those postings for you? Well, there was practically nothing to do. (laughs) And I remember at Bustleton, all the free time I went out on the wharf and fished. I think it's the perfect personality for this job because if you get anyone who's into gambling or something like that, they're not going to have the outlet to vent. If they're into drinking, they have extended periods working and being alone, and that's not going to end well. That's right. No, you, that is absolutely correct. Whereas well, you're productive with your time, you walk, you fish, you read, and you, right. you're the perfect... And I wasn't uh, into uh, socialising. And, and I, it really didn't... I mean, a lot of blokes at that age were mad keen to meet a girl and go out with her and this sort of thing. Well, it, Never crossed my mind. I've met a number of veterans who met their wife during the war and had a quick marriage and an even quicker honeymoon, whereas you didn't rush things, you took your time. No. Do you remember war ending? The particular day or hour, I don't, except that uh, I didn't volunteer. You, the people were applying to be discharged, and I, I didn't worry about it. I just waited until they said they didn't want me. And they, that happened when I got leave to go back to home and uh, while I was home I got a telegram saying that I was going to be discharged. Because they were winding down all the They were winding down, yes. And you were finally discharged in April 1946. That's correct, yes. There's a photo of you in RAAF gear, Pleasance in a nurse uniform and Barney dressed as a French marquisard. Oh yes. Do you remember the photo being taken? Yes. My father was dead keen on Leica cameras. And he was snapping all over the place. He was pretty good at it, really. So he organised that. He got us to get our uniforms on and this thing. In the photo, it's quite funny. None of you look particularly pleased to be there. I think we were that sort of family. What did you go on to do after the war? Well, my father offered both Barney and myself to come into the business, which was doing pretty well at that stage. And uh, particularly as we were taking up new lines... There was one company called the Drayton Regulator and Instrument Company. They made instruments. We imported these instruments, temperature recorders and things like this they were making, and uh, float valves for boilers and quite a big range of stuff. 
and gaskets and clean air equipment. Yes, that well, that was the old equipment that he was still making. And we had at one stage we had a factory of about thirty people in it, I think. What about Barney after the war? Did he go back to do his university degree? He went to the university. We don't know what happened because that was before I got back from. Before I was still in the air force. Because he'd done two years almost two years of his engineering degree at Sydney University, and then he joined up, and then he would have gone back to complete it, presumably, post-war, while before your discharge came through. We sometimes think it was the horrific business he went through, you might say, starting to catch up on him. So he abandons his degree and goes to work for your father? Yes, he was mainly in the office, sort of helping my father. I was developing products that we were selling from uh, the Drayton Regulated Instrument Company and another crowd called Armstrong Machine Works. What about your sister, Pleasance? Yes, well, she was nursing, still nursing. But in a civilian capacity now? Yes, that's definitely. As the years went by, you said that you hadn't been a close family growing up. How was your relationship with Barney working together as adults? Well, because I was handling different lines to what Barney was involved in. Barney was helping my father in the office, and I was very seldom there. I was involved, and so I didn't have that much contact with Barney in those years. When did you first start to learn a bit about the experiences he'd had in France, you know, being the only survivor of his Lancaster crash, working with the French resistance against the Nazis, and some of the amazing things he went through? I didn't really know much about that. Barney wasn't a great talker about it all. He was very reserved, and I know he and Jenny attempted to, or they did, write a whole screed about what went on. Jenny encouraged Barney to write an account of his experiences, and thankfully he did, because that was a vital piece of research for Thistle Productions, the makers of this podcast, when doing the For School and Country documentary, and even more instrumental to uh, Michael Veach and myself and Angus Horden when putting Barney's book together. So um, I'm really glad they did that, but you wouldn't have got to read that at the time. You would have found out later. No, I didn't read it. There's just a little bit more to go with Anthony, but before I wrap up with him, I want to play a bit of the conversation I had with Kath after Anthony and I were done. And you've been quite instrumental in getting Anthony to open up and talk a bit more about his wartime service. Yes, well, it's bit by bit, Alex. He very reserved about it because he felt that he did nothing. Funny, I was talking to Michael quite recently, and I told him this, and Michael just roared with laughter. He said, they all say that, Cap. <laughs> but, yes, he just felt, well, he felt very much in Barney's shadow, I think. I mean, to have a brother who survived out of a Lancaster and being a bomb aimer to boot, when Barney, for people who have not read the book, when he was interviewed, when he finally got back to England and they said, but you're the bomb aimer, how did you get out of that aircraft? They just don't get out. And he did, because he told me that it was so hard to lift that trap door, and he's only a little man. When you're really scared, you can put up tremendous strengths, you know, Alex. You find another strength when you've got to do something. Anyway, Barn got out and he survived, and it's an incredible story. And I think it, um, 
Anthony felt, well, there's nothing much I can say. But what Anthony did during the war was secret. The Germans actually got onto the Isle of Wight trying to find those cafe ray tubes. They wanted to find out how the British were building this system. They actually got onto the Isle of Wight and they thought they were going to meet Dad's army and they didn't. They met a crack team of guys. But, Anthony, it was a secret job he was doing and it was a very important job because he must have saved hundreds of men's lives bringing them back because if they hadn't had the direction finding that they could log into, they had no idea where they were out over the Timor Sea, the Coral Sea. There must be lots of other fellows who did this particular job. But as far as we know, there is nobody else left alive because Anthony's one of the youngest men ever to do this. He says he's not very bright, but he's an extremely clever man and he has tremendous patience. And I got this out of him because I said, Ant, you're so patient with the computer. You never get cross. He said, I had to be very patient, Kath, because I was the only one in the Hoofdorf little shed and I had to work it out for myself if anything went wrong. And I said, oh, really? He hadn't. I've only learnt this about the last nine, ten years. And the funny thing is, Alex, it's when we're making the bed in the morning because he brings up little things that he remembers about the war. Ant did an incredible job in the war. Heaps of guys did it far harder, did amazing things. Anthony had a, a blissful time, really. He had a good war. He did. You could say that, Alex. He had a good war. Now back to Anthony. And Anthony, you yourself have not really talked about your wartime service much before, but... You've now opened up more thanks to your wife, Kath. What prevented you, do you think, from speaking more about it before? Well, because I think it thought it was, I still think it's so mundane and ordinary and nothing exciting really happened at all. I mean, it's not as if you're some poor bloke up on the Kokoda track or something like that. Well, your brother Barney had a particularly notable heroic war and it's been documented in a biography of his life and... That book, Barney Greatrex, From Bomber Command to the French Resistance, The Stirring Story of an Australian Hero by Michael Veach, was launched officially at Knox Grammar School on 8 November 2017. And that book launch, is that one of the first time you've worn your medals? Yes, it was. <laughs> so you've not done an Anzac Day march or anything like that? No. Oh, well, since we've been here, we've gone over to the Anzac Day service. But um, prior to that... I didn't get involved, really. Well, I am glad you're finally telling your story, Anthony. It's not a tale of frontline fighting for your life or a story like your brother's that leads to a legion of honour, but it's important. A million Australians joined up to fight in World War II, but only half a million went overseas. The other half had a range of duties back home. Defending the mainland was a very real concern at the time after all, and whether they were teaching or had postings like yours with a very specific skill set required, they were all vital. The war machine is very large, very complex, and every piece, every gear is required to keep the wheels turning. Servicemen like you help make it possible for those overseas to fight the enemy. So thank you for your service, Anthony, and for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. 
I hope you enjoyed hearing Anthony's story. If you did, you can write to us about it by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. This conversation was recorded before the tragic death of Anthony's brother, Barney. Barney Greatrex passed away on 17 February 2018. I spoke about Barney and featured some highlights of him from the For School and Country documentary in the short podcast episode simply titled R.I.P. Barney Greatrex that came out earlier this year. If you want to know more about Anthony's brother Barney, you can visit www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com book. You can also listen to a few episodes from last year's podcast, Australian Airmen's Untold Stories with Michael Veach, Barney Greatrex, out now, Launching Barney Greatrex with Michael Veach, and Retracing the Resistance with Charlie Mort. The book, Barney Greatrex by Michael Veach, based on research by yours truly and Angus Horden, is published by Hachette and out now where all good books are sold. It's the most fitting tribute to this late, great hero. There's also more information in the book about Anthony, Pleasance, and their parents, Basil and Elsie. Check out photos of Anthony and his family on our social media pages, LOTLPod on Twitter, and Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>